Welcome to the Self-Talk Radio Show. Mind-changing radio. Welcome to Self-Talk Radio Show. I'm Sarah Spencer, and I am so excited for my next guest. If you have ever needed to ask for a raise, you've done a sales presentation, fallen flat on your face, or you do a great presentation but never get the results you want, well, Tim Pollard is the author of The Compelling Communicator. He outlines the essentials to making your ideas stick and shows you how to compel your audience to take action that gets results. Welcome to the show, Tim. Oh, hey, Sarah, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, pleasure to have you. So why do people present so poorly? That is that is a really simple question with a quite complicated answer. I mean, if you step back, and the data is very clear that that is the case, uh, if you look at um, uh, data from sales, for example, companies report that the quality of their solutions on a 10-point scale uh, you know, about an 8.1 out of 10. So the thing they do is great. But when you ask them how good their sales presentations are, how well they communicate their value proposition, on the same scale, they report a 3.9 out of 10. I mean, you've got amazing companies, really good companies, and they just cannot tell their story well. And then if you look in the general world of communications, um, only about a third of, of formal presentations are ever rated as good or better, about half a rated as sort of mediocre and then a really ugly 20% really kind of stinking the, the joint up. And it's it's really funny that here you have something that's so important in life, communication, but data everywhere shows we don't do it very well. The reason is, I'll cut right to it, is that the brain wants to consume information in a certain way. The, your brain and mind's an amazing thing, but it wants to consume information in a certain way. And if I, if I cut right to the chase, the, the, the answer to that question is that we, we tend to communicate in ways that misalign with the way the brain wants to consume information. And you'll never be successful if you're doing that. If you can do, if you can create really good brain-aligned communications, then you can be very effective. So uh, it's very interesting. And, of course, the rules of how the brain consumes information, what it loves, what it doesn't like, Nobody really understands those, and so we get hung up on all this other stupid stuff like, oh, I've got to have good eye contact and body language, and, and nothing could be less important than that. And so when you focus on that, you end up you know, hitting the bullseye on a target that didn't even matter. Really? So eye contact, not necessarily the most important thing, huh? <laughs> it doesn't make the list. I mean, if you, if you came out of a... No, it's not the least important. It's so wow. funny that there's an entire industry teaching this nonsense. If you come out of a a presentation, you hated it, and you, and, and you turned to a friend and said, oh, that was so awful. What do you say? Have you ever in your life said, oh, I hated it? He didn't make enough eye contact with me, or his, his body language wasn't sufficiently, you know, Shakespearean. No, you say, oh, I was confusing. There was so much information. It was too long. and I got lost. I didn't understand it. He had horrible slides. Um, what you're doing is you're commenting on the architecture of the presentation and how it related to your brain. So, Oh, I just shut down. It was just you know, 150 PowerPoint slides. And you think about it, it's really funny. You, you, Any time you, you think about when you love or hate any communication, it almost never comes down to how it was delivered. What it comes down to is how it was architected. And this is there's another reason why people present badly, is they unfortunately they've been sold pretty much an enormous lie, which is if you get your eye contact and body language right, and you look all confident and dressed for success you'll be great. It's nonsense. The finest communicator I know by far is an 83-year-old woman who's about four foot five tall, not even, and 
and she sits completely motionless and with her head down, speaking in a strong Hungarian accent into a microphone. She's like a stone. She's the best communicator I've ever seen and the most impactful I've ever seen. I've seen her present to thousands of people, and she's extraordinarily impactful. Why? She doesn't have any delivery skills. She doesn't even do that, but she has extraordinary... She had an extraordinary ability to architect one of the most compelling pieces of communication I've ever seen, which was her lessons she drew from her experience as a, as a girl in Auschwitz. And it's fascinating. So, yeah, if you want to be better at a communicator, figure out how to get architecture right and don't even don't obsess over delivery because it just doesn't matter. And what about telling a story? It seems she has a very compelling story to share. What if your sales presentation isn't exactly... Um, <laughs> noteworthy. You're trying to get uh, fourth quarter results for your company across to your sales team. It's not exactly as compelling as uh, a story from an Auschwitz survivor. How do you how do you bridge that? Well, it's interesting. Um, I get that. I get asked that question a lot. Is is she successful because she's talking about Auschwitz? And the answer is no. I mean, yes, that material is inherently interesting. She's funny. She's a total firebrand. She. I asked her that, and she said to me in her Hungarian accent, no, she says, lots of, lots of Holocaust provide, uh, survivors make horrible presentations. I often have to come in and rescue them. And she's <laughs> critical of their PowerPoints and stuff like that. Now, the, the reason her material is so good is that she does the one thing you need to do as a communicator, which she understands that the brain operates at the level of ideas. It doesn't traffic well or deal well with lots of facts and lots of data. The brain loves ideas. Um, think of your brain as reductionist. In other words, what it does, it takes any information that you present to it, and it, and it reduces it to its essence. Great phrase I use all the time, and it's happening right now to you and to anyone listening to this. I say this, your brain is not recording this conversation. Your brain is synthesizing this conversation. And what I mean by that is if if, if tomorrow or a couple of days from now somebody says to you, oh, Sarah, that guy who was talking about communications, what was he talking about? You're not going to hit play and recount the 30 minutes. What you're going to say is, oh, it was interesting. It was this, and it was this, and it was this. But you see what you're doing there? You're boiling the information to a small number of ideas. That's how the brain works. And so what a great communicator must learn how to do is to operate at the level of ideas. And so uh, if I'm making any presentation, rather than building hundreds of slides and thousands of, of data points, what I really want to do is understand what are the two or three critical ideas I'm trying to get across. Um, and that's what makes this lady, her name's Eva Kors, so effective. It's not just that it was Auschwitz, but she draws three incredible life lessons from her experience. So one of her big ideas is, no matter what, she tells several stories about the horrors of Auschwitz, and she's only 12. And then she says, now, why am I telling you this? That's an important phrase we might chat about later. And she says, because whatever you face in life, never, ever, ever give up. Mm. And what she's done, and I've never seen anyone else do this as well, is she in, is instinctively understood that communication is about ideas. And so in her entire, she calls it a lecture, you'd call it a presentation or a talk, is just about these three ideas. And I would argue that any piece of communication can be boiled that way. And any piece of communication, whether it's financial results or a sales presentation, um, can be made inherently sticky and inherently interesting.
We're speaking with Tim Pollard. He's the author of The Compelling Communicator, outlining the essentials to making your ideas stick. And can you talk more about how do you make ideas really sticky for people to really remember? Yeah. So if you think about most communication and presentations, there's really good data that says you retain about 15% of it only. Awful. 15% within a couple of days. And only normally 3 or 4% within a couple of weeks. So most information is not sticky. And it all comes back to what I said earlier. It's all to do with how you've, you've tried to, how you've engaged the brain. So if you stand up and put up a load of PowerPoints and there's just point, bullet, 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 topic, 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 that's almost the worst possible way you could try and create sticky information. Sticky information that will have, or information that is sticky to the brain will have several hallmarks. One of them will be, it will be very logically sequenced. And why does that matter? Because the key to how human beings learn is sequence and structure. So if you read a book, for example, chapter six makes perfect sense because of chapter five. And chapter five made perfect sense because of chapter four. So you can even read a very complex book like Lord of the Rings. And I bet you if I asked you, you know, tell me about Lord of the Rings, you could recount the story. Well, there's these guys and there's the ring and then they go on this journey and they start here and they go here. It will have made perfect sense. It will have stuck. Now, let me ask this question. What if you read Lord of the Rings, but you read the chapters out of sequence? You wouldn't, you wouldn't retain anything. It wouldn't make any sense in the moment, and you wouldn't retain any of it. So sequential structure, and you were talking earlier about story, that's really what I'm talking about, is, is essential to stickiness. Because um, as long as you, if you can or if you do arrange your uh, material into a logical narrative, and so make sure the story in there that actually comes out. And we have some really cool tools for how to do that. Um, that's one very powerful way of making it stickier. However, the biggest way of making uh, an argument sticky, and this gets really into the deep end of the pool of brain science, is to equally plant the idea, uh, your big ideas, into both the left and right brain of the audience. Now, let me explain that. Mm. The left brain loves and does quite well with fact and data. It kind of does the small picture. Your left brain sees the world in, in terms of little pieces and parts. What's really interesting is your left and right brain is functionally divided, and in fact, they literally perceive the world differently. So the left brain sees the world through the lens of just pieces and parts. The right brain sees the world as a whole. In other words, it sees patterns and meaning. So if you think of the left brain does analysis, which is breaking things apart, but the right brain does synthesis, so putting everything back together to form a pattern or meaning. And what's interesting is in general, it's true, two, two important things are true. One is that information that touches the right brain is much stickier, stays longer than information that touches the left brain. And by the way, guess where you make decisions? In the right brain. Because decisions are about synthesis. They're about putting all of the information together and coming to a conclusion. Do I buy this car? Do I not buy this car? So what most people do in the West is they've been taught just make a really solid, rational argument. So if I'm trying to sell you something, so I make a really rational argument. And as long as I cover all my bases, have all the facts, all the details, then I'll get the decision I want. Well, of course, that's stupid, right? That, we know that that flies in the face of how people make decisions. People actually make decisions using the right brain much more instinctively, much more emotionally. People aren't irrational, but they tend to make the, they make the decision in the right brain, and then they rationalize that decision with data from the left brain. Now, that's a little deeper than we need to go. But the bottom line is, if you want to make something really sticky, you want to plant it equally in the left and right brain. So let me tell you how you do that. Um, think about a poem. A poem or Shakespeare, I bet you find very hard to remember. 
but we remember songs very easily. Now, why? Because with a song, the lyric is stored in the left brain, the melody is stored in the right brain, and there's a great phrase from neuroscience, my favorite phrase, says, neurons that fire together, wire together. So your brain forms a pathway between the two. And so, essentially, if you're trying to remember a song like Happy Birthday to You, you've got two different places you can go to get it. Now, that's really interesting to a communicator, because if I can plant my idea in two places in the brain, now I've created stickiness because you have more places to go to retrieve it. Now, there's actually four or five different ways of doing that. One of them is to tell stories. If you tell stories about that are related to the big idea of your topic, that will plant your idea in the right brain. The correct use of visual aids plants an idea in the right brain. Um, the use of artifacts uh, plants an idea in the right brain. I'll give you a very interesting example. We were working with a company, and they developed a course. Uh, we helped them develop a, a course on advanced leadership. And one of their big ideas was the whole essence of leadership is legacy. In other words, it's about what people say to you on the day you retire. And their big idea, their point is, you don't leave a legacy on the day you retire. You leave your legacy from today onwards. You're always building your legacy. And what uh, we decided to do with them is give every student, uh, it's a very big company, you know them very well, um, a packet of seeds. And the seeds represented the, the legacy. In other words, what your legacy is going to grow into. And it was a really nice inscription on the pack of seeds. And it says, you know, may you build your legacy of leadership from day one as you go now. And um, I still meet people who, go, who, who will talk to me and go, oh, yeah, leadership is legacy. And I've still got the seeds. I go, really? When, when did you take the class? Oh, eight years ago. So here mm. something comes readily back to mind eight years earlier because a physical artifact was involved. Now, that's incredibly interesting, because I just said earlier that you don't remember, you only remember 3% of a presentation you saw two weeks ago. So how does somebody remember something for eight years? Because a, a physical artifact um, was involved. And there's other really kind of cool tools you can use here, uh, the use of metaphor. And one I know that was quite interesting to you was the use of antithesis or yeah. contrasting ideas. Yeah, yeah, I do want to talk to you about that with antithesis. Uh, we've got to take a break here, but when we come back, I want to talk to you more about the right way and wrong way to use PowerPoint, the best indicator of a great talk, and also delve a little more into the idea of antithesis when we come back on Self Talk Radio Show. Can't sleep? Try this. Sleep Meditation offers soothing meditations to help you sleep like a baby and awaken what's inside. All you have to do is choose the meditation you want to listen to from our library at sleepmeditation.org. Click play and enjoy. If you want to keep the recording, purchase the downloads you want. Plus, Sleep Meditation offers specials on motivational pieces that help you start positive change, stop bad habits, or sleep like a baby. Sleepmeditation.org. Welcome back to Self Talk Radio Show. I'm Sarah Spencer. My guest is author Tim Pollard of The Compelling Communicator, talking about ideas that you can convey in your talks. One of the tricks he uses is antithesis. Can you talk a little more about that, Tim? It's really funny. Um, they don't really know why, but antithetical ideas, and all I mean by that is a fancy word for contrast, is give the brain uh, a, a contrasting idea, and it loves to chew on it. So I'll give you... I could give you hundreds, literally, of examples. I'll just think of some just randomly. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Um, 
the only line or the line that everyone remembers from the Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying, mm. you know, or, or dodgeball. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Um, uh, if you actually go back, and I get really geeky here, look at the what has stuck, what has survived in the human consciousness from Shakespeare. Every single one of those is deeply antithetical. So to be or not to be, or yes. not to be, yeah. Whether and 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 there's actually four antitheses in that speech. It actually goes on. I won't go through all of it, but um, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing enemy. He's saying so. Which one of these two? Which which way are you going to go here? Um, or your friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them, but the good is often buried with their bones or interred with their bones. So what you find is antithetical ideas are incredibly sticky to the brain because your brain treats them like a puzzle. It wants to kind of unravel them. And what you find is, therefore, they show up everywhere. Um, do you, have you ever noticed that, that almost all proverbs are antitheses? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Stitch in time saves nine. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. So one of the most powerful things you can do, and the book explains in some detail how to do this. I can't get into that now, but but what it does, it allows you, uh, what it teaches you is how to actually uh, create antitheses in your argument and get the audience to kind of work on, on reconciling them. Very, very cool. Actually, it's probably one of the most advanced things we teach, but when you yeah. can do it, it's extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, you also mentioned in the book that I, it didn't even dawn on me if you park at Disney and you park your vehicle and people are having a hard time finding their vehicles and they <laughs> rename the yep. parking lots by the shark. Yeah, that well spotted. That is exactly right. That's a perfect example of, of so the, so the, it was actually Universal. Disney does something slightly different, but Universal recognize the same problem. If you're an experienced business, the last thing you want thing you want is for the people's final experience to be awful, which is trying to find their car. Mm. So they, they, they move from an alphanumeric system to the visuals of Jaws, King Kong, Jurassic Park. And then, as you said, you get out of the car and it plays you the Jaws theme music. So now they've planted the idea, and the, the idea they're trying to land is, where did I park my car? They planted that in your visual cortex through the picture of the shark and in your auditory cortex through the sound of the, the theme music, those two wire together in your brain, and the, the loss rate of cars plummeted when they did that. So one of, the, one of the essential things we teach and that the book teaches is how do you plant your idea in more than one place in the brain? And that creates just extraordinary stickiness. And that's real good fun because the other thing about that is most people have no clue how to use visual aids. They think they're just putting words up on a screen on PowerPoint as a visual aid. Just because it's on a screen doesn't make it a visual aid. Right. I think Oscar Wilde said, you know, just because a man's if a man's born in a field, it doesn't make him a horse. You know, just because you've projected it does not mean it's a proper visual aid. There's a right and a wrong way to use visual aids, and when you know, when you know how to do that, then you can create real power. But most people don't know how to do it. What's the wrong way to create a visual aid? Pretty much putting words on screen. Um, words on screen with multiple competing ideas. Um, what you want generally is one clean visual, and the most important thing about it is that it teaches a point. So I'll give an example. There was a, an IT director we were working with, and he was pitching an in, his boss or the, the board for an enormous investment in an information systems upgrade. And uh, his big idea, so you always start with the big idea. His big idea is what we're doing now 
is dangerously outdated. So we helped him look for a visual that would poignantly illustrate that. And actually, if you remember the pictures in the book, it's a picture of a horse, and it's actually a man hiding, not hiding, sort of using a horse as a shield, black and white picture from the 1930s, using the horse as a shield, and he's got sort of a musket. And, and you look at it, and it's sort of heartbreaking, because obviously if he's coming under fire, the horse is going to take the fire. But it's even worse than that, because that was actually a picture of a Polish cavalry officer, you know, circa 1935. And um, that is the, the time of the outbreak of the Second World War. The Germans obviously had aggressively mechanized. They had panzer tanks. And the, the Poles had not mechanized. They had men on horses with, with rifles. And uh, it was a bloodbath. It was a slaughter. And the image of, of this guy behind the horse that's kind of on the ground, laying on the ground, and you're using it as a sort of a, not a human shield, I guess an equine shield, is poignant and tragic. So he told the story, and it took you know, barely a minute to tell the story. And then he says, again, this quick key phrase, why am I telling you this? And he says, look at this picture. This could be us, guys. What we're doing is dangerously outdated. Mm. Now, that is how you use a visual aid. In other words, you take an idea. Your idea is what we're doing is outdated. They hear it. They probably also see it in their handout. What we're doing is outdated. The visual then complements the idea visually and plants it in two places in the brain. That was one of the most breathtaking examples. I mean, that's what visuals can do for you. And the tragedy is most people get up there and they just throw words up on the slides and put them on the screen and they think they've done visual aids and or nothing the, could be further from the truth. Or the infamous pie chart that gets flopped up there and <laughs> bores yeah. everyone to death. Well, now, you yeah, mentioned... I mean, you that's mentioned a whole different discussion of data. We won't go into that, but it's, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. You mentioned um, a speaker that went up and initially when I read it in your book, I think it's in the early pages of the book, where he went up and he made an offer. If you find a spelling error, he'd give you 20 bucks or something. I don't remember the whole. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you said that wasn't a good idea. People were interested and they were looking for the spelling error, but where did he fall down that was the, the biggest, most it, significant thing there? Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a, it's a fascinating story. And it, I think it illustrates one of the most important things, which is we've got to understand the rules of the brain if we're going to communicate well. So here was a guy, it was a famous story. A friend of mine had seen, had witnessed this, and he told me the story about a year later. It was a big conference, financial services conference. The keynote speaker gets up, and he puts up his first slide. It's a bunch of bullets, and, and it's a title. And there in the title was a, was a spelling mistake, was a typo. And, I mean, this is, you'd think this is an irretrievably embarrassing moment. I mean, like, how do you recover if there's a typo in your title? And it's so bad, somebody calls him out on it and, like, dude, did you not see the typo in your title? And so you think he is sunk. And uh, he smiles. It's a true story. He smiles. He says, thank you very much, well spotted. And, and he walks out into the crowd, and he gives that guy who called on him $20. And he comes back. Now the audience is utterly silent. They're like, tables have turned. What on earth is going on here? And um, comes back out, takes out his wallet. He pulls out $200 and $20 bills, and he puts them on the podium. And so the audience is like, what is going on here? And he says, there's one more typo in my slide. Whoever finds that gets $200. And the place erupts. Now, you think about this. Is that a good decision or a bad decision? And instinctively go, oh, that's fun, it's cool, he's broken the ice. No, he's completely screwed. 
He's completely shrewd as regards his effectiveness as a communicator. Because what he's done is he has planted an idea in his audience's brain, which you do want to do, but he's planted the stupidest idea, which is there is one mistake in these slides, and if I'm the guy that finds it, I get $200. So think about it. He now goes through his presentation, and every time he took, and he had lots of bulleted slides, and every time he puts up a slide, no one's listening to him. They're scanning the slide looking for the typo. So he's on you know, bullet one. They're all down at bullet five, six, seven. They're not hearing anything he is saying. They're completely disconnected from him. And I don't know. And by the way, you know how I know that? My friend who saw this, I mean, he remembered this a year later. But I said, that's fascinating, Mark. What was the guy talking about? What was his subject? He said, oh, I have no idea. Mm. So here's a guy, and, and, and he's done this thing that looks so funny and clever, a little bit back to eye contact, right? It's hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. It's funny and amusing and clever for sure. It feels that way. But we are trying to be effective communicators, not comedians. And, and he has been utterly and totally ineffective because nobody remembered anything that he said because all they were doing was looking for that typo. Now, Mark, my friend, didn't remember this, but I've got a great rhetorical question, so I'm sure I know the answer is where did he put the, the second typo? He almost certainly put it on the last slide or maybe yeah. the penultimate slide because that would, in a sense, fulfill the purpose of his game. But what it meant is he created distraction. He created the one thing you've got to try and avoid is allowing people to get distracted by their cell phone and other things. You always want to fight the battle for them to turn off their technology. I spoke yesterday at Dell, and I'm, I'm in Dell, and I'm like, guys, turn off your laptop because you're, you're going to distract yourself so much, you're going to do two things badly instead of one thing well, which is following this discussion. And to their credit, they all did, because they really, we had just an amazing meeting yesterday, and, and but one of the reasons was they, they were not being distracted. So here's this guy. He has of himself created the most colossal distraction. He could be naked and on fire up there, and they wouldn't have noticed, because <laughs> they're trying to find that second typo. And the reason I put the story in the book is, when we don't know the rules... We follow our own instincts, and our instincts are bad. So his instinct to play this game felt amazingly good to him, and it probably felt good to the audience as well, but it destroyed his actual effectiveness. And so if we don't know the rules, we'll make all these dumb decisions, like how we're putting you know, too many slides, pause logical sequence, too many words on the screen, and all this kind of stuff, um, whereas there's so, much, so many better things we can be doing as communicators. So we've talked a little bit about the design of your presentation and, of course, delivery, what not to do. <laughs> so mm -hmm. which is more important, design or delivery? There's uh, <laughs> a great line in Shakespeare, 1,000 times I'll say it, design. It's all about design. I'll tell you another story, and this is so important. It was page one of the book. It's the prologue, and this is an another amazing story. Uh, I had spoken at a conference, um, and this is the perfect emblematic answer to that question. Um, I'd spoken at a conference. It was held at Disney, although it wasn't Disney. Um, and I was told, you've got to stick around. I'd spoken in the afternoon. I was told, you've got to stick around to hear the CEO. He's amazing. He's world-class. And this guy's very well-known. He's a well-known, uh, popular CEO. And he's an amazing communicator, so you've got to hear this guy. And uh, lo and behold, he comes up. He has a 30-minute keynote to close out their leadership conference. And um, I'm not kidding. It is, it is a master class in excellence in traditional presentation skills thinking. He's got the eye contact of a peregrine falcon. He's got the body language of Laurence Olivier. He's, 
He's just fluid on on the stage. He's moving around. He, he's, he's got his hands-free mics. He's just working the crowd. He's witty. He's funny. He's engaging. Never fumbles. Never stumbles over a word. Um, you know, he's meant to speak for 30 minutes. He speaks for like 29 minutes, 50 seconds. I mean, it's incredible, right? It's absolutely incredible. And uh, he doesn't slide bomb the audience. He's got one slide, and it covers his topic. Um, and it finishes. I'm not kidding. It was so funny. It finishes. It's like people are throwing underwear. They're erupting like, oh, you're so amazing. You're so amazing. You're so amazing. And I can be a bit of a jerk. People will tell me I'm a bit of a jerk more often than I'd like to be. But I did notice one thing, that his topic, even though it was only one slide, was the 10 things we've got to get right this year. And what was interesting is that, and I spotted this because it's what I'm looking for, is there was no, no logical narrative flow between the 10. It's 10 essentially independent ideas. They were all good. They were all important. But there was no logical narrative. You remember uh, um, this idea that, that, that the human brain requires narrative. It understands story. It doesn't do well with intellectually orphaned or isolated points. So I'm like, ah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the MC gets up, closes out the conference, um, doesn't try and top this. So he literally says, thanks for coming. See you next year. And everyone heads for the door. Now, as they're heading for the door, I grab somebody who'd been in the room. And he was happy to talk to me. He heard me speak earlier. And I said, oh, what did you think of that closing keynote? You know, let's call him Jonathan. What do you think about Jonathan? Oh, isn't he amazing? Isn't he amazing? And I said, yeah, it was great, wasn't it? I said, do you mind, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he goes, no, not at all. I said, just let me ask. It's just for fun. How many of his 10 points do you remember? And the answer was two. So here you have a guy. And this, is, this is incredibly profound. Here you have a guy who is literally, and I'll, I'll give him this, literally world-class in terms of traditional thinking of eye contact, body language, dress for success, all of this stuff. And he has had a retention rate of 20% within three minutes, which guess what? Mirrors what I said earlier is the typical retention rate of information. He's got everything right on design, but he's made one critical mistake. In, uh, in, sorry, he's got everything right on delivery, but he's made one critical mistake in design. He has not understood that you have to have a narrative flow within your argument. And that one mistake was enough to completely destroy his effectiveness. And that is the, it's the emblematic example of why design trumps delivery. When we coach speakers and we coach TED speakers, we design training for the best company in the world. We, uh, we work with so many companies like Ericsson, Dell, Emerson, LinkedIn, Salesforce. And on their sales messaging, we're looking for architecturally brilliant messaging. That's what we help them build. Delivery matters in the sense of you want to make sure the thing you design is the thing you deliver. So you want to make sure it comes out right. If you stand up and say something different than what you've planned, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main issue in delivery, by the way, is rehearsal. It's not eye contact. It's not body language. It's rehearsal to make sure you have precision. But the thing you've got to get right is design. Um, this CEO looks and appears to the outside world to be an extraordinary communicator, but he is, in fact, extremely ineffective. Hmm. By the way, his great question is, did you think the audience rated him highly? Absolutely. And there's a fascinating separate point. Audiences don't evaluate speakers on audiences evaluate speakers based on how entertaining entertaining right versus actually conveying information 
Correct. They, audiences don't evaluate speakers based on how much they learn. They, they evaluate them based on uh, how entertained they felt. Whenever I speak, somebody comes up to me and says after this, oh, Tim, that was, that was great. That was amazing. I always ask them the same question. I say, I say thank you. That, it's really kind of you to take that time. I really appreciate it. Let me ask, what were your big takeaways? What did you learn? I always ask that, and I always teach everyone to ask that because I don't care how entertained they felt. What I want is that they learn something. Um, so, again, a long answer to a short question, but if you're going to be a great communicator, you want to be a great message architect, and that is what we teach. The book is about message architecture. Our company is about message architecture. You mentioned, too, um, this was really compelling for me. Pardon the pun, compelling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'm trying to promote your book here. Um, but you said... If you find yourself saying, why am I telling you this or asking why is this important, that's a great moment in a talk. Can you explain why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what, it ties to one of the most common problems in communication. Um, people will so often get up there and they'll present data, they'll present facts, but they never truly land insight. Or it comes back to this, this, this idea about what are your big ideas. What they're essentially doing is, is asking the audience to draw conclusions for themselves. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And so I'll give you a negative and a positive example of this. We were working with a bank. and Before we started working with them, they told us a story. And um, it was interesting. They, they were pitching a young, kind of a traditional bank in Boston, funnily enough, where I am right now. And they were pitching a, uh, to do commercial banking for uh, a very young, agile software firm on the West Coast. And... Uh, they pretty much had the deal. It was theirs to lose. They were told that, that, you know, we know you guys are great. This deal is yours to lose. So they make the pitch. And one of the very final slides in the pitch was a picture of their account team. And what it wasn't quite the Politburo, but it was a bunch of old white guys, right? Seasoned mm -hmm. old white guys. And, um, you know, uh, very sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, respectable, but a bunch of old white guys. And um, guess what? They lost the deal. And the reason they lost the deal, they couldn't understand why, but they did have a good enough relationship. They went back to this client and said, hey, you know, we lost the deal. Can you tell us why? They go, yeah, you were doing fine. It was that slide of the old white guy. I'm like, what? Yeah, that was the moment. Now, again, this is a very poignant example. What, what did this bank, what were they trying to communicate with that slide? They were trying to communicate experience. But mm. by not explaining that, what did the young software company, what conclusion do you think they drew out of touch? Mm. Or a phrase I've heard recently, which I love, stale, male, and pale. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> so here's a software company looking at this like these guys are out of touch. They don't understand technology. Now, this actually brings me to, more precisely to your question. What they needed to do is say, put up the slide, that was fine, and say, now, I know this looks like a bunch of your dad's golfing buddies, but why am I showing you this, or why are we showing you this? Because there is 500 years of accumulated banking experience here, and there is nothing you are going to see that we haven't seen 50 times and know how to solve. So now I get to the heart of your the answer. The phrase, why am I telling you this, or why am I showing you this, signals that you're about to go from data to insight or from illustration 
to application or from what something is to what something means. And it's incredibly rare. And when you find it in your presentations, or, or more accurately, make certain it is appearing in your presentations, what, 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 it, what it shows that you're doing is going to true insight, is moving to true meaning for the audience. And that's a perfect example. I could put up that slide and say, Sarah, Sarah, I don't know how, how, young, how old or young you are, but if you were this software company, Sarah, I know you look at this and think, hey, these guys are a bunch of guys like my dad. Do they understand technology? And say, now, but why am I showing you this? Because they don't need to understand technology. They understand the financial problems you're going to have and we know how to solve them. Mm. It's exactly, in fact, what you see with this Holocaust survivor, uh, Eva Kaur. She tells some stories about Auschwitz and you're left just bewildered. You know, you don't even know how to think about it. She goes, now, why am I telling you this? Because, um, and she used a wonderful phrase, in Auschwitz, dying was easy. Living took every ounce of strength you have. So whatever you face in life, never, ever, ever give up. And what that phrase does, why am I telling you this or why am I showing you this, it, it holds you to a standard of teaching insight, not just presenting data or information. Tim Pollard, your book is amazing. He's the author of The Compelling Communicator. If you need to do a presentation, if you need to do a pitch, if you just want to learn how to communicate better and have your ideas stick, I highly recommend this book. I couldn't put it down, Tim. It's it's a wonderful book. I loved it. That's that's very kind. Thank you. We have got lovely feedback on it. I, we're ex excited about how it's doing out there. And I'm excited for people to read it. It, it. it will change them in ways they can't imagine. Tim Pollard, the author of The Compelling Communicator, has been our guest. If you'd like details on how to get his book, you can find it on Amazon or go to selftalkradioshow.com to get your copy. Also, if you'd like to continue the conversation, join us on Facebook. I'm Sarah Spencer with Self Talk Radio Show. This program has been a production of Hall Communications, Burlington, Plattsburgh.